and welcome back to another ILO Future of Work podcast. I'm Sophie Fisher. Innovations in technology have always affected the world of work, but the issue is back on the news agenda and seems to have taken on a new urgency with the rise of AI or artificial intelligence. In particular, with the launch of ChatGPT last autumn. Commentators are divided on the effects this generation of AI could have. Some are predicting it will cost millions of jobs. Others say it could actually support decent work by helping workers and taking over some of the more mundane tasks. Now, I'm being joined today by Virginia Dolgast, Professor of Comparative Employment Relations at Cornell University's School of Industrial and Labor Relations. She has been at the ILO to take part in the Regulating Decent Work Conference, which has covered the effects of AI on decent work. Virginia, thank you for coming. Welcome to the studio. Thank you for having me. Let me start, first of all, by saying, well, AI is not actually new, is it? I mean, we've had it around for decades and it's actually already embedded in a lot of our daily lives. We just don't notice it. So what's so exciting now? Well, that's right. I've thought about that as well because I've been studying AI for a couple of years now um, and it has been around for a while. In the workplaces that I've gone into, um, a lot of these tools are, are pretty well established. And of course, as you said, in our daily lives, um, AI is all around us. It's uh, used for in our translating tools or web searches, um, as well as, of course, behind the apps we use to hail taxis. Um, yes. Or analyzing um, images. Analyzing so images. cars, medical right. imagery. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and there have been a lot of books written by academics or in the popular press looking at like the job destroying effects of automation um, coming from AI or how AI is used in recruitment or algorithmic management kinds of tools. And so, you know, I think there has already been a public discussion, but I think that um, the actual way that these tools could be used and their impacts uh, were relatively abstract before. So the recent Im impact, as you say, is, is connected to this wide accessibility of ChatGPT um, and other tools for, um, for generating images uh, where the public has this kind of tang tangible, tactile experience with these tools. And I say I've been presenting my research on AI um, for the past two years. And when I was kind of pre-chat GPT, um, you often had a, a kind of response, oh, you know, are these tools really that good? Will they really have any impact on jobs? And also just a lack of understanding of what the technology was. And it's just, I've seen a huge change um, in even recent months when I, when I present some of this research, everybody is kind of much more excited and um, has more of an intuitive sense. And, and now you find yourself working on one of the hottest topics in, in world of work academic research. Um, as I understand it, there are different approaches to looking at how digital tech and AI is changing our world of work. There's economic, the social, and you have a third one, which is called CER, Comparative Employment Relations. So tell us a bit about your approach. So comparative employment relations, um, basically, I think what's distinct about that is, um, or the way that I study work and other, other colleagues in my field, is that I think maybe to back up and think about, well, how do economists study these tools, right? Economists um, tend to estimate the, the impacts of AI-based automation on jobs and skills and tasks. Uh, you have a lot of sociologists and legal scholars who have 
um, done more case study based work uh, or looked at, at legal um, implications of algorithmic management tools for fairness, for monitoring intensity, these kinds of things. So um, employment relations really uh, has a distinct focus on how these different kinds of AI-based tools are used together at the workplace level, within firms, within industries, um, and also trying to understand then how institutions, um, both collective bargaining institutions through unions, but also national institutions, um, legal frameworks together um, are influencing how these tools are adopted, um, as well as being able to, to influence and change um, the impacts of those tools on work and on workers. Great. Well, of course, from the ILO's perspective, that's exactly what we are interested in. Now, your research has focused mostly on the ICT industry, communications, information technology. Um, why did you choose to look at that industry? An important reason to look at the ICT industry, and when we when we think of this sector, it encompasses telecommunications, IT, um, tech, big tech, and game development, a lot of different segments. Um, but across this industry, this is really where AI-based tools are being developed. And so a lot of firms in these sectors are really early adopters. Um, they're on the forefront of uh, the developments and use of AI. Um, but also you have very diverse segments and kinds of jobs um, within this one sector. So you can study the impacts on higher skilled jobs like programming and engineering, uh, as well as more easily rationalized or automated jobs like call centers, back office. Um, you think about game testing work, um, which is where you have a lot of union organizing right now. Uh, so across these jobs and these industry segments, union, um, union presence and worker representatives uh, in the you have them in the traditional telecoms. They have a long history of unionization, but then you have a lot of new organizing um, that unions are doing in the in the tech sector. So within one industry, in other words, you're getting pretty much a look at everything. You're getting super high skilled cutting edge. You're getting much more basic repetitive tasks. And you're also getting the the large traditional forms of, of employment with contract and everybody in one place. And then what is often referred to now as kind of gig, where people are, are very um, dispersed and working by themselves and negotiating their own contracts. You've got everything in one industry. That's true. You have everything in one industry and you also have a sector uh, that has a lot of experience with actually developing these tools. So some of the workers right, in the sector are actually the programmers who are, who are making the AI. Right. <laughs> There's an irony in there somewhere. Okay, let's go back to your approach, your CER approach. From that perspective, how do you see AI changing the way work is organized? And to some extent, obviously, it follows on from that, ultimately regulated. So the impacts of um, AI on work, I think of them as um, falling across a number of different areas. Uh, so I, I've described them in the past as labor replacing, labor controlling, or labor displacing. Um, but another way of thinking about that is, is just the impacts on job numbers, skills, intensity, discretion, location, right? The Can I just get you to unpack those three for a second? Labor controlling would be, give us an example of that. Um, so labor controlling is more around algorithmic management. 
So in other words, an algorithm checking your work to make sure you're, you're doing it and how often your productivity rate. So what about labor replacing? That would simply be somebody losing their job to an algorithm, would it? Uh, yes, or it can also be replacing certain tasks or certain skills, right? Yeah, so, which of course might be bad tasks that you don't want to do that yes. free you up something else. And labor dis displacing, what's that? So labor displacing is more about the location of work. So remote working. So in other words, you don't have to employ somebody in California anymore. You could employ somebody in uh, Calcutta. Yes. So, so for an example, um, call center workers can now be working from home. And increasingly um, with the pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, mm -hmm. uh, you saw companies moving a lot of workers to work from home contracts. And those really were enabled by the ability to use more AI-based monitoring um, right. in their home workplaces. Thank you. Sorry for that little digression, but I, I thought we ought to explain it for the listeners. So let's go back to the point you were making about how you see AI changing the way that work is organized. So I, can I give an example from call centers? Please. Um, because I think this makes it more concrete. Um, so if you think about that first set of effects, right, or as labor, um, labor replacing, um, you see uh, chatbots, which everybody has now had experience with, right? These are basically peeling off simple calls, and these are increasingly um, enabled by AI using some similar technology to chat GPT. Um, and then you have robotic process automation, which is basically automating a lot of follow-up after calls that agents used to be doing um, online before they would take the next call. You have these front-end assistants where agents can help, can then find customer information, or uh, it will lead them through. It's a little prompt on their computer screen that's kind of acting like a chatbot and telling them what they should be doing to help them answer difficult kinds of questions. So these tools make workers more efficient. Um, it makes the work more intense, right? You imagine you used to be doing a lot of different things. Now you're just handling calls all the time and you're handling more complicated calls because all the simple ones are being handled by the chatbots. So all of that will change the kind of um, content of work, make work more intense, and have these mixed effects on skills. Uh, on the one hand, workers are getting more complex calls, um, but then one worker can handle a wider range of call types. On the other hand, um, they're not having to use their skills as much because the tools are leading them through all the other kinds of skills. Um, so that has a lot of implications. Then on the algorithmic management side, the worker controlling, increasingly the call center worker has a coaching app that's AI enabled, that's going through and telling them, oh, you need to speak with more empathy to your customer, for example. Um, or of course, one person's coaching app is another person's person looking over your app, looking over your shoulder all the time, isn't it? Yes, it's another form of intensified monitoring. So it could be a tool, oh, you know, it's helping me to do my job better, but it also then can be used by management to have a lot more information about what the customer's doing. Presumably an issue will be that if this job is becoming more stressful and hopefully more productive, is that additional productivity and stress being reflected in the workers' remuneration or benefits? I mean, that's something we're going to have to tackle as well, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Well, again, it's a bit of this question of how um, the companies are evaluating what the impacts are in skills, for example. Um, and also in cases where they have unions, are they renegotiating things like job classifications? And is the union willing to do that? That will have some effect on how these jobs are organized. Um, certainly, I've already seen 
uh, in these telecom firms in different countries that employers are starting to come to unions and saying, well, some of the skills are changing. Maybe we need to change the compensation um, structure because of that. Uh, or the unions are coming back and saying this work is more intense. Workers are handling more complicated calls. So their bonuses uh, need to reflect that. They can't handle them as quickly. Um, and no. Yes, because if you're only getting the complicated calls, the calls can't be dealt with in 30 seconds. They're probably five minutes, which yep. might actually look bad for your mm-hmm. for your productivity bonus. Okay, well, I don't just want to focus on what might be perceived as the negatives. There must be positives for workers in, in additional AI in, in their working regime as well, yeah? Yes. So, I mean, I've already talked about skills, um, which could also be a positive aspect, right? So... It, it's important to aspect to emphasize, I think, that um, AI can often be seen as a tool, not only for high-skilled workers, um, but also for, well, call center workers are, can also be very high-skilled. Um, but they, you know, we, so for example, uh, we did a survey of call center workers in the US and we asked a number of questions about different kinds of AI-based software that they were using in their jobs. Um, and we found that they were actually quite positive where they saw um, these different software tools or applications helping them to do their jobs better, to improve customer service, because they care about doing a good job. They, they like it when <laughs> they can find the information easily. Mm. Okay, so that's, that's one way that, that it can improve positives to workers. And presumably also it means that high-level jobs are available in more geographically diverse locations. So you no longer have, for example, to move to Palo Alto in California mm-hmm. or to um, Mumbai mm-hmm. to get a high-skilled job. You can remain somewhere where perhaps you have family connections or you have some reason that you can't move mm-hmm. and still get a higher quality, hopefully higher paying job. That's true. It- provides more job opportunities um, also to rural areas. It means that workers don't have to commute or to change locations as they're searching for for different kinds of jobs. So it improves mobility from the worker side. You could also say uh, there are ways in which these tools um, help reduce management bias, could potentially um, help reduce bias. So if you think about it, for example, um, AI is increasingly being used in uh, tools like scheduling or training to recommend training or to help organize scheduling. That takes away some of the control for managers who might um, have their own biases, um, human biases, and it could create a more transparent um, kind of tool. So, for example, in Germany, um, I talked to some works counselors uh, at Deutsche Telekom who were developing a scheduling tool that gave individual workers much more control and flexibility, which was using AI. But this was something that was then designed together with the works council and management that made sure that it built in a lot of controls and safeguards. Okay, well, that's interesting. And it brings me on to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, what are the implications for workers' organization and, in particular, trade unions? Significant, yes. Um, so the examples that I just gave, I think about the, you know, the positive and the potential positive and negative aspects are a way of thinking about how there, are, there is this huge range of possibilities of how you're using these tools um, and really figuring out how to use them in ways that both are positive for employees, but also are positive for productivity or for customer service, these other kinds of outcomes we want. Um, you really do need worker input and worker voice uh, to 
particularly with new kinds of technologies, they're often buggy, they make mistakes, um, and the workers on the front lines are the ones who see those and can help correct them or can help figure out how to make them work in more efficient ways. Um, so you need unions on the one hand to put negotiated limits to make sure that um, managers are not using these tools in a way that significantly degrades the quality of work, intensifies monitoring, de-skilling work, um, but also to negotiate to make sure that they're used more as tools to complement skills, um, to empower workers. And firms can really benefit from that as well. And presumably now some of these AI tools are so complex that actually it's pretty hard for a manager, particularly one who doesn't have a PhD in uh, mm -hmm. a relevant discipline, to actually understand what they're doing, how they're doing it, and what the consequences are. Mm -hmm. So you actually, they actually need more assistance to, to convert something that's theoretically a, a, a tool of help into something that actually improves things on their shop floor or whatever it might be. Yes, that's right. Um, I talked to a consultant who was working with um, call center managers in many different countries, and these were non-union workplaces. And he was saying uh, that he's brought in because people buy these speech analytics kinds of AI-based tools, um, and then they just try to put them in place without thinking about their whole um, broader management policies or how they're actually going to use this data and information. Um, and in a sense, they're helping management to build in something like employee voice uh, into the design of these tools. So a real advantage of unions and works councils is that you have that resource um, to, to figure out how to design them in more efficient ways. But I can see a challenge here with the simply with the issue of organization, which is fundamental to you know workers moving together, mm -hmm. be it in a union format or in, in any other. Because if AI is, as you said, is is encouraging work displacing, people are working at home. Um, they may not even be in the same time zone. They may not even speak the same languages, and also some of these people will be uh, young people with high tech skills, high ICT skills, who aren't used to the concept of working within a, an organized labor structure. Mm -hmm. So there's obviously a big challenge here for, for unions actually to get workers together so they can speak with one voice. That's true. It is a big challenge. Um, and you see a lot of organizing often starts mm -hmm. and um, in these different areas of the tech industry where um, either you've had tradition, a tradition of unions, like in the telecom sector, yeah. um, but then a lot of the traditional telecom unions uh, in many different countries are now expanding out and starting to have different organizing projects in these newer segments. And they are having success um, often. So, for example, in game development, mm -hmm. um, it starts off often with uh, the workers who have maybe the most easily rationalized or the um, jobs with more intense conditions like game testing. Um, but increasingly, you see more solidarity developing, um, broader um, work together between uh, union organizing within companies like Alphabet, mm -hmm. um, which is the Google parent company. Um, and you, then you see them doing a lot of advocacy and um, publicity around trying to improve conditions down the value chain for people who are doing, for example, AI coding and AI testing. What do you think? I mean, there's a lot of talk now about regulation of AI. How do you see the challenges of, of, of that? Do you think it's actually going to be, be possible to put any kind of, of shape or form on how this industry develops? 
I think that yes, <laughs> there will. It is possible to to shape how the industry develops, um, but as you say, it is changing quickly. Um, so, on the one hand, I think it's it's a good idea to have broader regulations that set a floor of of certain hard limits um, on how AI is used to make sure that it's not used in ways um, that could potentially harm um, both employees, but also the general public. Mm. Um, and some basic tools like the the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation in Europe, is yeah. certainly a, an important tool um, that covers a, a broad range of uses. Um, the AI, AI Act um, also sets, I think, reasonable ground rules. And there are efforts now in the US also to think about what some of those ground rules would be in ways that don't stifle innovation, but that um, also protect workers in the public. Um, but then on the other hand, I think uh, just having um, better regulations to support unions and to support collective worker voice are really key. And that means co-determination rights or bargaining rights, um, but also basic freedom of association. This is the ILO. <laughs> and that's uh, something that, you know, in my own country, the U.S. is not always so well enforced. Um, and this means, you know, making sure that unions can be present, can organize in more firms and have the rights to have information about and to negotiate over these tools. But as you just mentioned, in addition to uh, the traditional areas of concern like freedom of association and voice and the right to collective bargaining, this also leaches into areas like like privacy, Mm -hmm. like um, uh, creativity and intellectual property. So it's a very, very complicated area. It is, that's true. Um, And a lot of those regulations in a sense so I, I was talking to um, one expert in the game development industry, and he was saying that he felt that um, what was really going to drive um, decisions about AI use in um, a lot of decisions on programming or um, the way in which generative AI was being used uh, was going to be through lawsuits um, because of intellectual property. Um, and you already see different countries trying to figure out how they're going to regulate um, intellectual property um, for that reason. But you also see unions negotiating over this. Um, I, I don't know if you followed the, the Writers Guild strike in the US. Um, you had uh, negotiations where the union was trying to, to put into their contracts um, basically a, a prohibition against um, using training AI on content that was generated by the writers themselves. Mm, um, yes. In a sense, this is a copyright issue. Yes, and there's also been a case with somebody who who voiced a voice artist who voiced mm-hmm. up one item mm-hmm. and has now found that his voice through AI is being used for all sorts of subsequent products, with which, of course, he's not getting paid and never gave permission. Yes. Um, but at the time that he wrote the contract, it could never have been anticipated that this would have been a use. So, I mean, you think that regulation and the shaping of the industry will have to come from a whole different range of things, ground up and top down from institutions, uh, multilateral institutions, and also from these these areas of use, utility, such as uh, legal cases. Yes, I think definitely it will. And um, I think that you know unions, but also basic other civil society organizations, um, social movement organizations will all be involved um, in making sure that there is both a worker and a public voice in these decisions. And Again, to emphasize the importance of 
having a, a clear frame, framework for labor rights so that you have this flexible ability of workers within workplaces, firms, and industries to respond. So coming back to where employment relations <laughs> connects to all of this, um, you know, in my field, my focus has clearly been on, on that worker voice piece. And I've seen very much in my comparative research between uh, Germany and the US um, that where you have in Germany a framework where you have rights to negotiate. Uh, for example, they have clear co-determination rights on um, how technology is used for behavior and performance control, which is, is a very clear right that we don't have in the US. Um, and it means that there's a lot more possibilities um, to actually come up with uh, jointly negotiated standards um, that meet both labor and management's needs in that area. So once again, the importance of workers' voices comes comes to the fore. Let's leave it on that note. Very important note for the ILO, very important note for the development of AI. Virginia, thank you so much for your time. That was Virginia Dolgast, who is Professor of Comparative Employment Relations at Cornell University in the United States. And for now, let me wish you all goodbye. And please join us again soon for another edition of the ILO's Future of Work podcast. Goodbye.